But you walk into a John Winnelly's pub and you'll find a picture of yeah. our founder uh, above a fireplace. You'll find a warm fire. Uh, there'll be two armchairs either side of that fire, which would be um, where you'd want to sit. And you'll have happy, smiley people behind the bar. And, you know, for me, that's as simple as it gets. Meet Will Lees Jones. Will is the managing director of JW Lees Brewery, which is where we recorded this podcast. This is a conversation that's not just about great pubs and their place in our lives, it's about leadership and how to conduct yourself and your business during the darkest hours. You may have heard me talk before about how hard the hospitality sector in Manchester was hit during lockdown. But despite us being under some of the toughest tier restrictions in the country, you'll hear how determined Will was to keep his family business going. You'll also hear how his values, along with the motto of the family business, saw him invest in the future of JW Lees and its people. The pub is such a place of friendship and community, so I wanted to know how do you find the tools to rebuild that community when you simply can't operate as a business? I'm Lisa Morton, and this is We Built This City. Will, thank you so much for joining me on We Built This City. I'm thrilled and uh, honoured to be asked to be here. <laughs> thank you. Well, it's been a long time coming because I've been trying to get you on the, the podcast um, for ages. And then, bizarrely, I happened to meet your family on a beach um, earlier this year and found out that they belong to you. So that's how I finally got you on the podcast. So I'm very pleased about it. Um, we've just been chatting about whether you're a born, bred or adopted Manx. So you were born in Bowdoin. And I think everyone in Bowdoin sees themselves as Manx, don't they? And you spent obviously a huge amount of time helping us to build Greater Manchester in different ways. So you went to school in rugby and started your career in London and then came back up north about 30 years ago to join the family business, is that right? Yeah, it was at the time when uh, I, I was carving out a career for myself in uh, advertising, making ads on the telly and things like that. I remember Manchester bidding for the Olympic Games and coming up here the day after Samarash, the Olympic Committee had been and it was just brilliant. It was how Bernstein at his best. I just sort of um, had built a successful career and thought, uh, do you know what, maybe it's time to go and join the family business. And every time I came north, um, my grandmother used to say, why, why aren't you at the brewery helping your father? Can't you see he's getting tired, he's getting old. So it was my time back in 1993. And had you ever had that in your plan or was that just that you was kind of you got the calling from the family? No, it was never in my plan. I always took this view that people from family businesses that went to work in family businesses weren't good enough to get a job anywhere else. And so I went off into the big wide world, was uh, doing stuff. And then it became clear to me that actually there was a fabulous opportunity here not just to come and run the family business, but to up sticks from London. Uh, my poor wife, we just got engaged, and uh, I said, you know, we might be moving to Manchester sometime. <laughs> uh, she didn't expect it quite as quickly as it happened, and she's from the south, and she, she used to burst into tears, normally uh, just south of Birmingham, in terms <laughs> of, you know, I can't believe we're doing this, but, um, yeah, we've been here for nearly 30 years now. Well, she seems to have adapted. She's not got flat vowels, though. <laughs> No, that's never going to happen, no. No, I can't imagine that happening. And when you came up here, did you initially feel, because you you started as marketing manager, didn't you, within the business? I started at the bottom, really, Mm. in that one of the things that we've done as a family is to say that no one from the family can join the business until they've done five years working somewhere else, learning things. And my background, like I said, been marketing, so I did a a nine-month induction. We never had a marketing department. And so just getting some of the basics together within that was the obvious thing for me to get stuck into. But uh, I had a fairly fast track to joining the board and getting involved with big stuff rather than just doing the colouring in bit, so Mm. to speak. Mm. And how was it coming into a family business? I mean, did it gel or did you have different views say to your dad and the, the kind of the, the the board at the time how did that work um it was a nightmare <laughs> it was uh you know i got myself to the sort of dizzy heights 
of being a main board director of a ad agency. One of my best pals who uh, we'd started off training together uh, back in 1987, he, he ended up as worldwide chief exec of Saatchi Group. Uh, suddenly, um, I'm living with my mum and dad. Uh, my wife's also moved jobs and is in Manchester as well. And I'm driving into here, into the brewery with my father. We're having arguments every day in terms, I wouldn't do that if I was you, I'd do it like that. Oh, we've done it like this for 50 years. Who, who are you to say that we're doing it wrong? And so I wouldn't advise it to anybody. <laughs> well, that takes me back to when I finished university because I didn't have a job straight away. My dad had an, an engineering company in Salford on Trinity Way and I went into his business for a, a few months to help out and, and we did the same. He drove me in and we used to just row the whole time it just did not work so I left under a cloud about three months later and my first job was doing Boddington's Bitter I used to work for the Boddington's pub company uh, for a PR company so as we were driving over here I said to Craig can you smell the hops because I used to remember when Boddington's was brewing on certain days you could really really smell the hops in the air it was an amazing smell we get that smell yeah. every morning yeah and it's one of those things that you look at uh you know, Tony Ty used to be the yeah. uh, marketing manager down the road at uh, Wilson's, so yeah. to speak. And, you know, one of the great things about the Northwest is that we've never had a dominant brewery. Mm. And the big national breweries always had about the same levels of market share. And for us, that was always going to be the big opportunity. We, we always said, you know, when Boddington's Brewery closes in Manchester, that's going to be our chance. And sadly, it did. Mm. Yeah, after the riots. and with the, Well, I remember when I first got my job and I was doing the, the work of the brewery, obviously right next door was the Strange Way riots that year as well. So that was a, an incredible time in history. What do you feel when you first came, your experience in marketing brought that was different to what was here before? What Did you have marketing here? Did you have those creative ideas? And did you have impacts around that? Well, it was one of those things that we never really had marketing uh, we took the view that we put all of our investment into buying the best raw materials and that drinkers would work it out for themselves that we had the finest beer on the planet. And in fact, when I was working in advertising, the first agency I ever worked for, uh, we did some posters for the brewery. And at the time, our biggest customer was uh, Bernard Manning at the world-famous Embassy Club. And we did this great poster with Bernard with a pint of beer and the headline he knows more about good taste than he thought and it was one of those things where we brought the copywriter and the art director and the photographer and the photographer's assistant you know remember this was the 1980s we had loads of people to take one photograph <laughs> uh, he couldn't do it on an iPhone then <laughs> so all these people and, and Bernard Manning being Bernard Manning insisted that he wouldn't have his photograph taken until he'd finished his act that evening and he was renowned for it because he'd do uh, two sportsman's dinners and then he'd end up at the embassy club he was he was a very very good businessman and it was one of these moments where all of these um very right on uh, london folk that my boss ray uh, ray swore that he'd been to leeds uh, he'd never been north but he'd been to leeds once and he kept going ray you never went to Leeds. We went We went to Leicester to go and see Next. And so there we are in, in, in the Embassy Club. And um, I have to say, he was very, very funny. You know, a master of delivery. And at the time, uh, our biggest customer. But the trouble was that uh, he didn't perhaps give us the best reputation mm. for our beers that we might have. And so getting all of those basic pillars right was, was a really big deal. And so how do we take... Um, a brand which is a fairly complicated brand because it's not just the beer uh, each individual pub brings a different experience and turn that into something meaningful mm. and I heard that you your local pub in Tarpley they used to put pies out on the bar and that you nicked that idea and brought that to your pubs is that right you have you put free food on the uh, yeah the so um, you know it's one of those that a few years ago a few people from the village um, said, you know, why, why don't we meet for a pint every uh, every Friday at six o'clock? And uh, you go, what a great idea. Actually, what a great discipline to uh, spend the weekend with the family. And so I made a point of never being away on a Friday, always being in the pub for six o'clock, so never working particularly late. And so I, I did a bit of a Victor Kayam because uh, not only did we put the uh, the pies on the bar, 
But um, I then bought our local pub and we bought the uh, the Vale Royal Abbey Arms uh, off Green King and it's now the best pub in the area. We won the uh, best Sunday lunch in Northwich competition recently. Amazing, so, congratulations. Uh, yeah, it's one of those <laughs> things that, uh, that we're able to do. <laughs> We can't not talk about the horror story that the hospitality sector had to suffer with the pandemic. And um, that's how I really kind of connected with you because we do a lot of work in hospitality. And I saw that you were not taking that line down. And I read that you'd said that you weren't going to turn the lights out on the pub company in this generation. So it struck me when I read that, that not only were you going through um, with your team an incredibly stressful time having to look after the people in your organisation but you also had the weight of six generations of a pub company and a family business to think about so how was it for you at the time? I can take you through it literally uh, day by day Friday the 13th of March 2020 uh, we went to Cheltenham Races first time I'd ever seen hand sanitizers. Friday the 20th of March, uh, one week later, Boris went on the telly saying, we're closing all the pubs. And we'd seen in that week, I was out every night um, and people were terrified. Uh, I remember going into the, on the Tuesday, I went into the Rosa Lancaster in Chatterton and there was a lady who, I bought everybody in the pub a drink and she said, oh, William, give us a hug. And six months later, Aunt the landlord said, do you remember that lady that wanted to give you a hug that you refused to hug? Uh, she's on uh, full life support now with coronavirus. And you can literally, you go from the uh, the human side of people dying, people catching the uh, disease and suffering very badly, certainly initially. And then, of course, the economic side, where I found myself on a British Beer and Pub Association board meeting. And one of the other directors said, well, we need to talk to the media. And me, Big Mouth, comes out and says, yeah, I'll go, I'll, I'll go on the BBC tomorrow morning. And my wife was at university with Louise Minchin's husband. So I phone Louise and say, can you get me on BBC Breakfast tomorrow? And she goes, it's not that easy. Uh, you really need to speak to one of the producers. Anyway, we went on BBC Breakfast the following morning. And it, it became a little bit of a, um, from a personal perspective, a sort of life support mechanism because... None of the public company chief executives were willing to talk to the media. And it was really terrible, you know, just in terms of we had a very small amount of cash. Uh, we owed um, a serious amount of cash. And as you know, without cash flow, business doesn't exist. Uh, we didn't know what the government was going to do. Uh, we were potentially about to lay off a thousand people. And then uh, the chancellor stood up with this new word, furlough and you kind of go well well, how does that work and then you go on the website and the rules change every week and I do think that the level of engagement from government has been very good and so we ended up on a weekly call uh, with the ministers from uh, Bays and and civil servants and there were things that you you had no idea you were going to have to deal with that all of these pubs sitting on stock and some of them started doing takeaways when they're allowed to do it but yeah one of the major problems particularly with rural pubs was how do you destroy all of this beer without um, messing up the water table and drains and things like that and so all of all of these problems but the number one thing from our perspective was that we took the view that um, we were going to survive and if we were going to survive our number one priority was to look after our people and to maintain uh, whatever level of cash that we had in the business or the bank was prepared to lend us or the government was going to give us. And that became pretty much the driving force uh, for the next two years. Mm. And then there was a terrible moment where um former colleague passed away, a guy called Chris Jones, who'd been the brewery engineer. And Chris's daughter, Siran Jones, the actress, she... Uh, got in touch with us and said, would it be all right if the funeral stopped at the brewery for five minutes to pay their respects? And there's this weird moment where we're in the middle of lockdown. About 150 colleagues came in 
uh, the hearse and the cars park outside. Uh, I'd sent out this note saying, you know, if you're on furlough, you mustn't come into the brewery. So we all stood there in the freezing cold, two metres apart from each other. The funeral came past. It was very sad. And then everybody went away again. And you're sort of going, you know, all these moments and things that we went through uh, during the lockdowns, you're sort of going, well, how long is it going to last? And so we go from one lockdown to another lockdown to another one and all of the conditions. And when people finally were able to come back to work, I don't know if you noticed on the way and in our reception, we got everybody to sign the wall back in April last year. And, you know, for many people, being in work uh, is, is an important part of their life. It's it's where they make friends. It's part of what they do. And so we've been very big on getting people back to work but at the same time cognizant of the fact that most colleagues within the business work within one of the pubs and so people have been doing amazing things just in terms of keeping their communities uh, positive. And you were very vocal weren't you because you actually banned Nicola Sturge and Mark Drakeford from your pubs didn't you so that went quite viral I think. It did and um, it, it was one of those moments where I probably spend too much time messing around on social media and things like that. <laughs> that uh, I think I, I, I did a caption competition on uh, Matt Hancock's Christmas card that got sort of a million or something engagements, <laughs> but it distracted me. It was one of the ones where yeah. my, my kids go, they go, you won't believe what Dad's done now. So I go, you better take that one down. But by the time it had been <laughs> taken down, uh, the story had gone uh, viral. But it was maybe a childish way to make a point because. Under British law, a pub landlord can ban a customer for no reason whatsoever for being in their pub. And some of the nonsense that was coming out of Westminster in terms of particularly things like the Scotch egg rule and the 10 o'clock rule and things like that, that, you know, these were things that, you know, talking to Sasha Lord, that he uh, was brilliant. You know, and you get into it if you're running a festival you know, one of the most important things is egress. How do people leave? And we were going back to the sort of dark ages of everybody leaving the pub at the same time and, and mixing with each other just because Michael Gove thought it was a good idea. And everyone drinking on the streets as well afterwards, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, in my mind, we'd invested, I was going to say hundreds of thousands of pounds, maybe millions of pounds. And you get into the, the mitigation that we put in place at a time when even the... Um, health department was saying that the virus was not being spread in in pubs and restaurants but they became almost in the spotlight because this was something that meant whether we could go out or not go out but Mm. um yeah all very frustrating very confusing very difficult Mm. and at that time though you had to lead and you and nobody had a toolkit for that particular crisis what did you learn about yourself and where do you think your resilience came from every day? This is kind of what all the training's been about in that um, people say there's no playbook to how you do it. Uh, the reality of it is that when you run you know, a small business like John Willie's, there's no playbook anyway. You know, I've been blagging it for years. <laughs> you know, if, if, if you're working for a big company like Diageo, they, you bring out policy manual and you do it. And... Yeah, you know, I say that sort of somewhat flippantly. You know, we're a 78 million turnover business. We are quite a big business, but you do these things instinctively. It's what leadership's all about. And from a where-we-go perspective, they say that reputation is everything. And so the measures that we put in place were extreme. So, for instance, we have... 102 pub partners who rent their pubs from us and most of them live above the shop Mm. they had no income so we charged them no rent and you sort of go well why wouldn't you do that some of our competitors were charging them full rent Mm. and so for me uh, yeah we invested in the future of our business and our reputation literally by just doing the right thing and so what we did, which was which was quite funny, on the basis that uh, a lot of the stuff the government was doing was just plain nuts, and and we told them, we said, are you seriously going to you're going to open all the pubs on 
Saturday the 4th of July. Yeah. You know, if we were doing a pub opening normally, we'd finish the building work, we'd do some training Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we'd do some soft sessions on the Thursday, um, open uh, Thursday night, and you're into Friday and Saturday night and everything's fine. So um, I thought, I can't do this myself. We got Steve, our landlord, to contact the local um, police to say, would it be all right to run a, a training session on the Friday evening so that we can train the staff because we can't open to the public until mm. uh, Saturday. So we invited the whole village. In fact, we say we invited the whole village. We invited the people that we liked. <laughs> um, so about 70 people came along and we said, we, we'll be everybody out by nine. Every single person who was invited um, came. Uh, everybody had a meal, all sat separately doing all the social distancing. We learned a lot in terms of how we could serve things. And then I sent the kids around with some um, ice buckets. Uh, and I said, just show your appreciation for the team in terms of what they've done. Everything's free because we're not allowed to be open anyway. So it's mm. a training exercise, but you can eat and drink as much as you like. The ice buckets uh, contain double the value of the food and drink that people had had. And people were just so pleased not to be uh, doing a come dine with me at their home yeah. and trying to make conversations, so <laughs> to speak. And um, it was great. We were, we were back in business. Wow. I mean, you're right. The amount of people that were drinking at home, we were laughing because when the bin men came round our drive, it sounded like Weatherspoons on a bank holiday weekend. I've never heard anything like the clattering of the uh, of the bottles in the uh, out of the bins. I was looking at where the pubs were, and obviously the northwestern North Wales, but so many of them are concentrated in this this area, aren't they? Around Oldham, Middleton. Is there a historic reason for that? That's how pubs used to be it's quite simple that you know you'd have a brewery a public house was a house that the public were welcome to come into uh, traditionally people would walk to the pub with a jug of beer uh, they'd buy their jug and they'd either take it home or if they were a publican they'd they'd sell it uh, in their front room and certainly our concentration of pubs was all in the Middleton Oldham Rochdale area and so what we've done is that we've we've built the uh, uh, the trading area. We'll, we also have quite a lot of pubs in North Wales, which mm. was because my grandfather's family uh, came from Anglesey. And so um, the theory was that people would like to have a pint of their favourite beer uh, when they're on holiday. Mm. Historically, if you take turn the clock back even further, had a number of big hotels in Blackpool and Rill but they were sold to pay for death duties in the 1930s. Right. And so you know, there's always been this evolution that's been going on. And the pub is just such an important, the local, it's always it has historically been so important to the community, hasn't it? And you were talking before about one of the pubs that you were in and there was a lady who wanted to give you a hug. And, and so do you still feel that there's the same community spirit around a lot of the JW Lee's pubs that there was perhaps 100 years ago? Very much so. And, you know, in my mind, a good local pub, you should be able to walk into and you should be able to have um, a conversation with whoever's uh, behind the bar and to be made welcome. And it's as simple as that. I think that uh, the introduction of um, food has been uh, substantial in our business. We've now got a lot of hotel bedrooms as well. Mm -hmm. So that adds adds another level of complexity. But in my mind, if you're going to be running that pub, there's got to be a decent living in it for the um, landlord and landlady that's running that pub. We've got to be able to protect people because a lot of pubs were in um, quite dangerous areas, so as to speak. So we've got to be able to create uh, a safe working environment. And people will generally respect that. Mm. And so when you walk into one of your pubs, how do you want it to make you feel when you walk in? I mean, what makes you feel like, yeah, this is all missing together, this is a really good local pub? Uh, you walk into a John Winnelly's pub and you'll find a picture of yeah. our founder above a fireplace. You'll find um, a warm fire. Uh, there'll be two armchairs either side of that fire, which would be um, where you'd want uh, to sit. And um, you'll have happy, smiley people uh, behind the bar um, if it's a Sunday you'll have the best Sunday roast that you can get if it's a Friday 
Um, it, it'll be fish and chips. And you know, for me, that's as simple as it gets. We can add lots of bits of complexity to that, but um, that, that's pretty much where we end up going. And one of the tests that we apply is that um, we ask ourselves, if, if we took down the JDB Lee's signs off the outside of the pub, mm. what is it that makes it different inside rather than just being a sort of plastic pub? And that can transcend many different formats. And so if you go into the centre of Manchester, you know, one of the things that we never had was we never had a really good pub in central Manchester. So if we were going to become the definitive brewer from Manchester, we needed to have the best pub. So in 1999, uh, we built the Rain Bar on Great Bridgewater Street. Mm. It won the uh, Publican Awards Best Design New Pub of the Year. Uh, people offer us money for it the whole time because it's, it's a freehold. You can't buy freehold in the centre of Manchester. But at the same time, if you go to the Rembrandt on Canal Street, you know, it's the best gay pub in Manchester. Um, always has been from a social perspective. In the 1970s, it had sort of frosted glass because nobody wanted to be able to see who was in there and people that were in there didn't want to be seen mm. to be there. But social values have changed. You look at Dutton's on Albert Square. You know, When Albert Square reopens, that's going to be the best bar in Manchester. Yeah. You go to Gulliver's in the Northern Court, best live music venue in Manchester. And if you want to go to the Millstone... Uh, the Millstone Best Live Karaoke in Manchester. And uh, we moved the drinkers that used to drink in the John Willie Lees in the Arndale Centre after the bomb. Yeah, it took us a couple of years. But um, yeah, again, that was it's a good example of where we've mm-hmm. sort of sold pubs and closed them down and um, moved people to uh, other places. And it's one of those ones where... You know, all the kids in marketing, they go, you won't believe where we went to on Saturday night after we'd been to whatever fancy restaurant. They went, I said, you ended up in the Millstone, didn't you? They go, how could you tell? Because everybody does. It's Friday afternoon as we're recording this and you're making me really want to go out. Excellent, you need to. Where are we going? How is it important to you that, say, the values of the previous generations in terms of how they set up the brewery and the the pub company, how important has it been for those values to come through those generations? And have you got a set of values or how would you describe what's important to you as a business? We've got a set of values and I think that in terms of the difficult decisions during the pandemic crisis, that the most difficult ones, we just went back to our values Mm. And the first thing that we say is that we never rubbish the past because the past is, is there, it's, it's happened. You do good stuff, you do bad stuff, um, but you can always learn from it. And you normally learn more uh, from the bad stuff than the good stuff. In terms of where we want to be, we call ourselves the um, traditional modern brewery. And um, all the modern traditional brewery, I can never quite remember which one it is. <laughs> but it's it, it's that whole sense of um, looking forwards with a sense of perspective. Mm. And in my mind, you know, one of the things that's a sort of focus for us is that in twenty twenty eight will be two hundred years old. And so you kind of ask yourself, what yeah, what are the things that we're going to do? over the next eight years that are going to define us because that's going to be you know another special moment Mm. and so in my mind I've been really lucky in terms of things that that we've done and things that have been associated with the brewery if you watch the film 24 hour party people you've got the uh, famous scene in one of our pubs of uh, Tony Wilson signing Joy Division on the back of a Jenny Billy's drip mat in blood. And you're sort of going, yeah, mm. you, you can't make up that sense yeah. of history because yeah. that's real. But then the other side of it, yeah, you talk to someone like Tom Bloxham, who um, is sort of my generation, and you know, he, he'll talk about going to the uh, the PSV club in, in Mossside where all of the bus conductors used to go. But it was a fantastic live music destination. But then if you looked in the ceiling, there were these sort of holes which um, were bullet holes because the, the gangsters in Manchester <laughs> in those days were uh, were quite scary. And so, you know, this sort of lived experience of, um, of, of the city, you know, these are things that have happened 
very, very recently. Mm. And, you know, I go back, my first job was at Willoughby's on Cross Street. And all of the fancy restaurants, and there weren't very many restaurants in Manchester in those days, no. but they all used to have these wine lists. And then uh, they'd phone up and I'd have to sort of run around and deliver the wine before the customer got too impatient. But sadly, you know, we, cl- we closed the Willoughby's yeah. shop. And in fact, when we opened uh, Dutton's and Albert Square, we thought, let's revive the, the Willoughby's name. And people forget quickly. Uh, they'd forgotten the Willoughby's wine merchant shop. They said, are you naming it after Holly Willoughby? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, of course, you kind of go, well, yeah, we've yeah. got Dutton's in Chester, which was named after Dutton's Wine Merchants, which was part of um, our business. And so we said, well, let's do, um, let's, let's do a chain of Dutton's bars because they're a bit more contemporary than pubs. And it means we've got another format that we can develop. Mm. You're right about Dutton's now, when as soon as the town hall opens, that is going to be the best spot. Everyone's going to be trying to fight for a seat there, aren't they, for sure? So I've met three of you four children, uh, grown-up children. They're all huge characters, got massive zest for life. What values do you think you've passed on or are you hoping to pass on to the kids? I've never particularly forced the children into anything. They're, they're very much their own people. They've had the privilege of going, growing up in a wealthy family. They've had every opportunity open to them. Their education, uh, for me, is the one thing that we can give them and helping them go in the right direction. And they've gone in lots of crazy directions. And so, you know, our eldest son, much against my wife's uh, better judgment, is now the restaurant manager at 20 Stories. Mm. And Bianca, who you've met, she was in the Red Lion Withington last night, so giving me feedback of what we need to do. But... um, (laughs) She'd been off looking at different universities and was adamant that she was going to go to Edinburgh. And I said, look, why don't I take you along to the uh, Manchester University Open Day? Because, you know, they've merged the university with the business school. The facilities are amazing. It's a great city to be a student. And uh, you may never see your parents because the whole sort of Fallowfield area, Mm. nobody sane would ever go there. And... uh, (laughs) She, she ended up in um, in Oak House, going through the uh, the full Oak House experience. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I think that to be able to do that through lockdown must have been really, really challenging. Mm. But it's it's interesting to see them all starting to come home to Manchester. And certainly my, my wife and I, as I mentioned earlier, we met in uh, London. And um, I don't think that the same life exists 30 years later in London because the price of property and things like that has become very, very high. But also the whole working from home phenomenon that um, I think that's much more prevalent in London than South East. And so our daughter, who is in London, she's wanting to work in a a busy um, office environment, so as to speak. But I think her sister's having more fun in Manchester. Mm. And what a time to be a student in Manchester right now, though. It couldn't be better, could it? One of our values is plant trees you'll never see. And I really believe in the importance of us using our platform as leaders to to do stuff for people that perhaps need us to use that influence that we have. You've been involved in loads of charitable organisations and not-for-profits and had uh, lots of NED roles alongside running this business. And one of the things that you seem to be very passionate about is helping young disadvantaged people. So can you tell me why that is so important to you and, and what work you've done around that in Greater Manchester? Yeah, like I say, I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that I grew up in a world of privilege and I think some of the slightly binary ideas about who might or might not go to Oxford University and the like um, are not very well placed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was the chair of the trustees of the Manchester Grammar School and every year there are 30 boys who, who go to the school and pay no fees at all. And the, the means testing is uh, extreme, but we have one of the best schools in the world on our back doorstep. And it was a privilege to uh, become a trustee uh, 20 years ago when the trust had funds of three million pounds. Uh, the trust now has funds of 30 million pounds. And, and working with the school uh, was amazing because education is transformational. Mm-hmm. And so similarly, when Bill Holroyd, who um, had founded Holroyd Meek, the food wholesalers, became the president of the Bolton Lads and Girls Club, he he said, do you you want to join us on the board? We'd like to build an equivalent club in Oldham. 
And so um, I remember taking the, the leader and the chief exec of Oldham Council up to Bolton. We then engaged with um, architects and had this um, vision. And um, I, I sort of did a bit of blagging and uh, Sir Norman Stoller is fairly uh, visible in Oldham. And I remember phoning um, Bill Holroyd on the way back from Bolton. I said, I've told a couple little bit of white, few white lies to the leader and chief exec of the council. I've said that you're behind it. Um, I've said that Norman Stoller's behind it. I've never even met Norman Stoller. <laughs> Um, is, is there um, anything that you can do to give him a ring before um, he, he gets asked who's this Will Lees Jones anyway uh, 20 minutes later um, phone rings in the car it's Norman Stoller and he goes is that Will Lees Jones uh, I go yeah he's a guy that you want to build a Bolton Lands and Girls Club in Oldham yeah I've been wanting to do this for 20 years um, you're going to need some money. So put me down for 250000 In fact, make it 300000 because um, it's going to start costing you some money. Uh, so it was a bit of a defining moment because there's a man I've never met who's one of the wealthiest people in uh, Greater Manchester, uh, one of the most generous people who, who's done all sorts of philanthropic activities, giving us a couple of chances who um, are trying to hoodwink the council <laughs> um, a load of money. And you suddenly go, do you know what? I'm not winging it anymore. I can actually, I, I can do this and I can make this happen. And when we opened, lots of great stories, but when we opened Madlow, which is Oldham spelt backwards, which is the Oldham ah, um, youth zone, right. I knew that living 40 miles down the road was not going to be particularly helpful in terms of popping in on, on a Saturday afternoon to see how things were going. And so I'd met Terry Flanagan legendary rugby league player and uh, telecoms chairman and you know I'd said to Terry you know I will help build this because that's what I'm good at and then I'll pass the baton to you and you'll become um, chairman you'll have the visibility but the two of us went round Oldham and rattled the tin and we asked our founder patrons to give us £15,000 a year for three years because we knew that we needed uh, revenue to be able to do this properly. And we found 16 individuals or companies who, who wanted to get stuck in with this. And we just said, just think about it. It's just having an extra person on the payroll. Think about it in terms of how can we help uh, the young people of Oldham find somewhere safe that they can go to, where they can develop their lives. And some of the people who've come out of that will do the same thing I think mm. that's um, how it works you know what goes around comes around and just because you've been unlucky enough to uh, be brought up on a tough estate with um, a violent household so to speak mm. uh, doesn't mean that you shouldn't get all the same chances in life that someone like myself has had. Yeah, I think it's so important it's such important work and you were also found a director of the Onside Youth Zone Yeah and so the vision with, with Onside continues and mm. I think it's really amazing to uh, see the youth zone in Gorton yeah. which um, uh, Fred and Peter Doan got behind and being Fred and Peter there's, there's now going to be one in Salford uh, one of the first ones was in Harper Hay which mm. takes us back to um, the world famous Embassy Club and Bernard Manning yeah. because uh, <laughs> again getting involved with that one that yeah. uh, part of the problem was that the area uh, well, the situation where we were going to build the club, the council gifted us the land. There was a pub called the Golden Tavern, which we had to buy and knock down. And Terry Cooney, the landlord there, was one of our first ever customers. So how do we buy a pub? Enterprise Inns didn't particularly want to sell. Mm. And all these things are possible if you're brave enough to pick up the phone to the chief exec and say, right, this is what we want to do. Mm. I've been to Gorton a few times. It's it's amazing, isn't it? Some of the kids in there. We did some work. We did a podcast there with um, Dave Scott, our kid, and he's done a lot of work there. And um, when we met him, he was greeted with such warmth. I could see that you know the impacts that he was having there, and and how much warmth there is in that place. It was quite overwhelming, actually. 
So some really good legacy work. And then you're appointed president of Forever Manchester in September 2020, which was not long after the initial months of lockdown and at a time where the grassroots communities in Manchester needed help probably more than ever. ever. So what was the journey for you to take that position? Basically, again, you know, it, it comes through who do you know, how can you make these things happen. I have to say I was a bit starstruck because um, the other president is, is Tony Walsh, the poet. Mm. And you know, when you look at the uh, platform that he's given Manchester in, in terms of the very emotional service that took place after the bomb, you sort of think, you know, this is just a huge honour to be asked uh, to do this. And so um, how do we do it and do it in a really good and positive way? You just sort of got stuck into it. And one of the important things was that Forever Manchester was the original community foundation for Greater Manchester. And so the government uh, needed funds distributing. Um, We plugged into that and uh, Nick and the team at Forever Manchester have just got an amazing insight if I, if I give you an example in uh, in Eccles the local politicians w- wanted to put in an outside Wi-Fi network so that people could get online in, in the public parks and uh, Forever Manchester were asked to get involved with this project so they went out and they talked to people and, and people said well we're fine with the Wi-Fi but you know it's the um, it's the dog mess that's a problem and so for a couple of hundred quid, they said, well, buy us some fluorescent paint. They just painted all the dog mess every day <laughs> and um, just highlighted the problem. And the problem then stopped because the people who were letting their dogs um, make a mess everywhere stopped doing it. And then the, the kids started using the, uh, the park for its intended purpose. And you kind of go, these are the sort of things that you can only achieve by supporting really little charities yeah. But the problem with really little charities is they don't have fundraisers. They just have lots of volunteers who are doing it because they want to do the right thing. And sometimes it's because they have a family member who has a particular condition. Other times it's people that want to make their community a better place to be. Mm. You must see a real bird's eye view of, of the need in Manchester being involved in the Community Foundation. It literally is a slice of, of life, isn't it, across Manchester? It is, and it's it's sort of what we do because mm. every pub is at the heart of its community, yeah. and probably some of the most challenging areas have lost their pubs. And the difficulty is that once that happens, they're lost forever. Yeah, anybody that works in the um, beer and pub trade, when Phoenix Nights came out, uh, people thought it was a comedy, but um, <laughs> it's actually real. This is what we do for a living, <laughs> and uh, sadly. Um, yeah, those sorts of clubs have all but disappeared. But um, people need to see people and to be part of their community. Mm. Otherwise, we all just sit at home on our laptops getting angry with people and uh, that's no good for anybody. Mm. And just thinking ahead, um, so in terms of, like we talk about legacy at Roland Ransfield, how do you want to leave JW Lees for the next generation? What do you want to have got in place by the time perhaps you call time um, I, I think it's the old um, family business mantra that you know we, we don't inherit the business from our parents we, we borrow it from our children I don't know what's going to get thrown at us uh, but I do know that the health lobby can now see the benefit of the pub whereas previously were just very anti-alcohol mm. and but, you know, believing in, in the sense of place that we have within the northwest of England. I think that we're lucky enough to live in an amazing environment and JW Lees as a business just keeps getting a little bit bigger each year. And for me, how we develop the people within that business is fundamental to our long-term success. And I'm going to go into a quick fire, Manchester quick fire for you. <laughs> so, which um, Greater Mancunians would you most want to pour a pint for? Ooh, uh, does George Best count? Yeah. There we go. I want to I go <laughs> on the course. piss with Georgie Best. 
which I have done, by the way. Really? I'd love to do it again. Oh my gosh, we need a complete episode on that then, don't we? How come that happened? When I joined the business, we, we had a sales manager called Alex Wiseman through our Willoughby's business, and Manchester United were a big customer of ours. And he says, we've got to sponsor the Manchester United um, business lunch club because um, they're forcing us to do it. And so, um, well, who's coming to speak? I go, well, we'll sponsor George Best because we can't sponsor George Best for a drinks <laughs> company. So I said, okay, we'll sponsor Jack Charlton. Jack Charlton, the most boring man on the planet. <laughs> I had to sit Did next you? to him and t- listen to him talking about fishing for a two-hour lunch. <laughs> so the following year, we're sponsoring George Best. And it was amazing because we went to United. This is pre-mobile phones. Well, not quite pre-mobile phones, but when mobile phones were still sort of suitcases. (laughs) And we arrive, and um, Martin Edwards is there. And uh, he says, would it be all right if if a guest joins us at at lunch? Uh, He's called Peter Kenyon, and we're about to announce him as as our new chief executive. And so Peter Kenyon gets stuck on the end with Joe Royal. I, I'm in the middle with, with George Best, and we have two hours of um, just the most entertaining stories. And, uh, yeah, what a, a, an amazing journey. And yeah. uh, lots of stories, you know, it didn't end well. But, uh, <laughs> no, I'm sure. Well, the afternoon or just generally? Generally. <laughs> the best Manchester pub jukebox song. Ooh, um, Buzzcocks, Ever Fallen In Love. Ah, good shout. What did you order at the Chippy? Fish and chips. Yep, and it's a Friday. And if you could name a beer after any Mancunian, who would it be? Beer after a Mancunian? you got the Brian Cox one, haven't you? you got the collaboration with Brian Cox. We did Brian Cox, mm. we did uh, We did Marky Pure White. I kind of pass on that on the basis that celebrity beers... Have moved on a bit, but um, working with Brian Cox with our Cosmic Brew mm. was was really good fun because he's just one of those big brain people who's able to see things. And actually, the design for the label, because Brian was born within walking distance of where we are now, that it was it was missed by most people. Mm. But the stars on the label were exactly where they were at the moment when he was born a- above the brewery and that amazing. sense of fascination and, and detail I found amazing but yeah. I remember meeting his agent and him in uh, London and we met at the Union Club on Greek Street and he was having to go to the BBC at Portland Place and uh, his agent said we need to get a taxi for Brian he needs, he needs to he's live he's live he's live so, okay, well, you just walk it's up to Oxford Street turn left up Portland Place all right because no you get lost <laughs> We're, we're all intelligent in different ways. Exactly. Yeah. And describe Manchester in a word that you'd use to describe a great pint of beer. We describe our beer as Moorish, that you always need more of, right. of, of Manchester. And, I love it. And I, I think that the more you scratch below the surface, uh, the more you find. I, I The other day, uh, there's a bunch of us and we're we're a bit old so we call ourselves the walking wounded <laughs> and we, we go for a walk sometimes on a Sunday morning and we, and we came here um, and we walked down the Rochdale Canal uh, to the Rain Bar in, in town and it's just a fabulous story of social history and um, it's amazing because you, you, you end up at the end of uh, Newton Heath and then as, as you go through um, Ancoats into New Islington, you, you kind of think, wow, this mm. this could be in a, we, we could be in Copenhagen. Yeah. Then you go into the Piccadilly Basin that's a bit smelly, so to speak, <laughs> and uh, we, we ended up at the Rain Bar. And it was just a fabulous, just a simple 10-mile walk and uh, an interesting perspective in terms of how the city's changing. Definitely, yeah. And that's great, Moorish, I love it. And lastly... Your Twitter bio is husband, father, taxi driver, brewer, pub landlord, and occasional dreamer. So what are you dreaming about now? I just dream of having time to do all the stuff that I need to do in life. I love the mountains. I love actually being out of communication, so as to speak, on the basis that we lead these busy, busy lives. But... Yeah, at this moment in time, 
uh, I'm 57 and it's really scary. I've, I've never been, you know, people go, oh, what's it feel like to be 40, 50, whatever. For whatever reason, 57 feels really old. And so my current big dream is how do we take this crazy and complicated business that's JW Lee's and how do we uh, get it ready for the next generation uh, who are coming through the business, whether that's the family or whether it's colleagues working in the business. But it's, um, it's a very exciting time and um, we'll see where we end up. Well, thank you so much for joining us on We Built This City. I thank you for your humour and your leadership in some very dark weeks. And I think kind of some of the stuff that you were putting out on social media kept a lot of us going and and a lot of people in hospitality, whether they were business owners or workers. So thanks for the light in the dark days. And I feel now that a bit of serendipity on a beach in February meant that I got to know your lovely family and I feel like I've uh, made new friends for life. So thank you and good luck with the rest of the dreaming. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Like I said at the beginning, I'm a bit of a tart, but I'm dead chuffed that you asked me. So uh, thank you so much and uh, and keep doing it because I think that uh, you know, we all have those sort of dark days, so mm. to speak. And I sadly think that the next couple of years are going to be very hard for mm. lots of different people. But um, if people go to the pub and they keep talking to each other, then it'll be a lot better. I totally agree. Thank you. Will Lise Jones built this city by being at the heart of the community with a bird's eye view, by capturing, creating and never rubbishing history and by not going by the playbook and blagging it for years. We Built This City will be back on the 30th of June with broadcaster, author and podcaster Emma Goswell. If you want to find out more about how Roland Transfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Transfield or Twitter at RDPR Tweets and we've just joined TikTok at Roland Transfield PR or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. And in the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built the City. Thank you. <laughs>